streaming from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Box. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming from today's show, racehorses and blood types. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. Seth Schulman, who will discuss the telephone gambit. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Grox Science Show. I'm Frank Lee. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? This week I'm thirsty. Well, it's amazing. Hungry, thirsty, sleepy. You know, I have other urges too, but <laughs> let's not get into that. By that, of course, you mean the ice cream urge, right? Of course. Um, I also have a hankering for blood. <laughs> bloody goodness. So speaking of blood, you may or may not have heard about this, but an Australian girl has actually switched blood types after a transplant. Unheard of, I thought. It's actually unprecedented. And basically she had to get a new liver Doctors suspect that some of the stem cells in the liver migrated to her bone marrows, and as a result, she was able to start producing a different blood type. But the miraculous thing is that her immune system has also accepted it. Wow. In most cases, when you have the wrong blood type with a blood organ, yeah. it causes some sort of rejection. Interesting. Scientists are not even sure this is replicable since it seemed like a very unlikely thing. Part of the problem with the procedure is that she also received immunosuppressive agents when she was undergoing a treatment, and that could have helped her adapt or suppress the rejection at the beginning and let her body accept it. Right. Well, I mean, it might suggest if they can figure out what the mechanism is, it would allow them to maybe have this occur regularly. Right, right. I mean, this would certainly aid in organ transplants and as well as uh, immunotolerance. So they've actually documented this in an article a couple months ago in the New England Journal of Medicine. Well, Frank, I'm a little disappointed that we didn't have an animal fact of the week. Well, well human fact, right? <laughs> well, I guess humans are, are... Are we humans? Humans are indeed animals, but so are horses. I heard some of them can talk. You are the famous Mr. Ed, <laughs> which most of the racing horses are not, though. I'm sure you realize that uh, most people who are involved in horse racing try and select out winners of races to breed and select out for good racing genes, essentially, right? Well, everybody likes to hang out with the winners, right? Uh, who doesn't? And, of course, breed with the winners. <laughs> but what it turns out is that those involved in raising racehorses uh-huh. may, in fact, be putting their efforts on the wrong aspect of it. In fact, it turns out nurture might be much more important than nature. In this oh, really? Yeah. Research done by Alistair Wilson and Andrew Rambout of the University of Edinburgh have discovered that in looking at race results, and purses of almost uh, 4,500 thoroughbreds, there didn't seem to be much of a correlation between the lifetime earnings of these particular uh, horses and the genetic links to previous champions. Uh-huh. But they seemed to have more correlation when you considered the trainers and who they were raised by. Training of the horses, in fact, seems to be much more important than genes and the genetic makeup involved. So a healthy dose of what? Purina, horse chow, and regular ma- ma- massage? Uh, a little bit of A, a little bit of B, and uh, a little bit of love, of course. <laughs> is what magic makes... ingredient. Published in a recent edition of Biology Letters. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Mr. Seth Schulman will join us to discuss the telephone gambit. So stay tuned.
to the Grok Science Show. Well, the telephone is such a ubiquitous part of daily life that few may stop to ponder its origins. Most are, of course, familiar with the notion that Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. But few may know the story of Elijah Gray, who may have come up with the concept of the telephone long before Bell. Well, join us today to discuss the story of Bell, Gray, and the Telephone is Mr. Seth Shulman. Mr. Shulman is the known author and journalist whose work specializes in science, technology, and the environment. His most recent books include Unlocking the Sky and Owning the Future. His new release, The Telephone Gambit, discusses the contention surrounding the invention of the telephone. Mr. Shulman, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, well, it's certainly a pleasure to have you on the program. This, I think, is certainly a very fascinating book, especially one that challenges the notion that Bell was the first inventor of the telephone. I'm sure most people know about Alexander Graham Bell, but many people might not know about Elijah Gray. I wonder if you could talk a little about him. Well, sure. Uh, I didn't know too much about him myself. The story of this book is that it recounts my experience of accidentally stumbling on information in Alexander Graham Bell's own lab book that pretty conclusively shows that he plagiarized the key element that made that telephone work when he first called to Watson in the next room, that he plagiarized that from Elisha Gray, uh, his main rival. Elisha Gray was an inventor who was 12 years older than Bell and probably a lot better known in his day than Alexander Graham Bell was, certainly before the invention of the telephone. He had made many improvements to the telegraph, and his small company had turned into a company called Western Electric, which manufactured equipment for Western Union, which was then the virtual monopoly in the United States on the telegraph. So that had made him a small fortune and a lot of fame, certainly in technical circles. And he was a man who grew up in poverty in Ohio and was largely self-taught, supported himself early on as a farmer, was so adept at tinkering with the telegraph and uh, inventing that he soon was, he went back to Oberlin College for a while and got a degree and then went full-time into inventing uh, and moved to the Chicago area, actually. So, fascinating guy. And in my reading of Alexander Graham Bell's notebook, the thing that happened to me is that when I, I noticed this, what, what it is is there's a sketch, actually, in Alexander Graham Bell's notebook that's virtually identical to a patent filing that Gray had filed at the U.S. Patent Office three weeks earlier. And when I saw that in Bell's own notebook, that set me off on a research project that took over a year where I went to many archives and tried to get to the bottom of the story of what really happened with the invention of the telephone. And how did Bell uh, come about finding the diagram of the telephone? Right. Well, of course, this was, you know, one of many questions that flooded into my mind when I happened to notice this thing. I, I was actually reading the notebook on the web, which anybody can do uh, through the Library of Congress. They're now available in a high-resolution digital format, so you can actually see the, the pages of Bell's correspondence, or in this case, his notebook in his own handwriting. So I had a flood of questions. How in the world could he have gotten access to this? Why wouldn't Gray have screamed bloody murder when Bell came out with a telephone design that was so identical to his own? And then, of course, how is it that no one could have noticed this in 130-plus years until I happened to stumble upon it? I, I describe it in the book as falling through a historical trap door, almost, because it all of a sudden sent me on this trail and gave me a completely different lens through which to look at a lot of the events that had taken place. The short answer to your question is that it's quite a twisted tale. 
It involves corruption in surprising places, corruption, in fact, in the patent office. An amazing thing about it, and one, one of the things that's really fun about this book is that I was doing this work as a fellow at MIT with a lot of top-notch historians. I, I'm a journalist, as you said, and this was the first time that they'd invited a journalist to come to this particular program to work with the historians and hopefully shake things up a little bit. And uh, so I had a lot of help along the way from a lot of people who are just absolutely expert at this kind of archival research. But the really fun thing is that the book's now been out just a short time, but already the reviews are coming in and say that it's a really fun and entertaining thing to read, which is something that I worked hard on. So I'm happy about that. The story really is written up as something of a detective story. It has lots of pictures and documents in it that people can look at and, and judge for themselves. For instance, this picture that I'm telling you is so identical. The thing that set me off in the first place is right there in the book, and people can look at it and follow along with me, because after all, I was very skeptical about this whole thing, too. But the amazing thing is that as I started looking into it, almost every aspect of the whole thing became fishier and fishier and, and more, the, the mystery deepened. And I surprised myself in being able to unearth all sorts of things. And in particular answer to your question, one of the things I ultimately unearthed in the book is an affidavit toward the end of his life from the guy, the patent examiner, who handled this case, a guy named Zenas Fisk Wilbur. And it's there written in his own hand that he explains that he let Bell illegally see a copy of Gray's confidential filing. And of course, this is something that that changed history. He explains that even why he did it is quite a long affidavit, and he says that he was an alcoholic uh, and that he owed money to one of the partners in Bell's uh, that was representing Bell in the law firm that was representing Bell and uh, had actually served under this guy in the Civil War in the military. So he felt indebted and did this as a favor. So as you can see, this is just one of many different sort of circumstantial documents that were sort of hiding there in plain sight that once I started on this trail and started looking gives a very different portrait of the origin of, as you said, such an incredibly important invention and, and a ubiquitous one today. Hmm. Uh, how did Bell become aware of uh, Elijah Gray, and particularly that uh, Gray was very close to inventing the telephone? Well, you know, it's a very interesting thing. This there were a, a good number of inventors in that day who were working on related subjects, including Gray and Bell and Thomas Edison and a number of others. And the holy grail of the moment, the thing that they were all really working on, is actually they were trying to invent a machine that could send multiple messages along the telegraph wires at the same time. What was happening is that they had what we'd call today essentially a bandwidth problem. Uh, they had a traffic jam on the, on the telegraph wires. People were sending a lot of telegrams. It was becoming very popular. And yet you could only send one message at a time over the wires. So what was happening is that Western Union was having to string up wires all over the place. And so the person that could invent a way to carry multiple multiple messages at a time along the existing wires stood to make a great fortune. So a lot of people were working on this, and they were all very cognizant of the fact that there is a race going on, just like there often is for that sort of next incremental step in the technology. And they kept apprised of what their competitors were doing. And certainly Bell writes in his letters and correspondence and in his notebook even about the fact that he feels himself to be in a race in particular with Elisha Gray who had made some patent filings working his way toward a multiple messaging telegraph, and, and Bell was working on the same thing. Now, the interesting thing is that in Bell's case, 
his plan to do this is that he wanted to send the messages at different musical pitches or frequencies. So you'd have a high-pitched message going at the same time with a very low-pitched message, and he wanted to design receivers on the other end that would be tuned just to that particular pitch so that they'd only listen for that message. It turned out to be quite a hard thing to do, and he had a lot of difficulty pulling it off, but it was research that led him directly toward the, uh, the idea of sending voice over the wire. So they were all watching each other. They were all paying attention to the patents and published work of this small group of inventors and felt that they were in a race. And so it makes for kind of an exciting story uh, at a time when people really hadn't fully envisioned the telephone. Some people had talked about it, but certainly people didn't take that leap to realizing what an incredibly revolutionary invention it would become. One of the uh, pivotal figures in the book that you mentioned, of course, is Gardner Green Hubbard, who might in some respects be uh, very much responsible for the whole operation. Well, there are a lot of great characters uh, in the story, actually, and uh, certainly one of them is a guy named Gardner Green Hubbard. He uh, came from one of the wealthiest families in Boston. He was an entrepreneur and a patent lawyer himself with homes in, uh, in Boston and Washington, D.C., and he became Alexander Graham Bell's financial backer. And what really makes the story interesting is that, like any good twisted tale, there's a, a love story at the heart of it. Bell was just 29 years old when all of this was going on. And at the very same time, it just so happened that Bell fell madly in love with Gardner Green Hubbard's daughter, a woman named Mabel Hubbard. Uh, now, Mabel Hubbard was happened to be deaf, and Bell was the teacher of the deaf, and he first met her as a student, actually, and he absolutely fell head over heels for her. You see it in many of his writings, and even Watson, his assistant, later wrote that, uh, that Bell was often so distracted that he could hardly get any work done. This figures into the story in quite an important way, and and clearly greatly complicated Bell's relationship with his financial backer. I mean, after all, he, now he's not only in a position to try and make a return, a financial return for this guy, but is desperate to win his daughter's hand in marriage. And Bell was not a man of means. He was a relatively poor and struggling immigrant from Scotland and had fallen in love with a charming and wealthy young woman. So it put him in a difficult position that ends up, I think, having a lot to do with the story of the telephone's invention. The thing that set me off and what I often come back to in the book and trying to figure out how some of the pieces of documentary evidence fit together, the thing I come back to is this sketch in Bell's own hand and his own notebook. I mean, there's no question. For a while, I was thinking, well, maybe, yeah, the, you know, Bell's handlers essentially were cooking up something that he was even unaware of. I don't think it was quite that way, and I'm pretty pretty sure that it wasn't. But, um, but there is no question that there were many, many anomalies, some of which it's unclear the extent to which Bell was calling the shots, and it often seems as though Gardner Green Hubbard is calling a lot of the shots. And one thing that comes out is that the telephone was controversial almost from the start, even in Bell's own day. And uh, there were, just like with any new technology, there were legal battles over it in the, in the early days of the telephone. And that forced Bell to get on the witness stand under oath and explain a lot of things that had happened. And that turned out to be a wealth of information for me. And one of the things that Bell testifies to under oath is the fact that he actually didn't file his own patent application on that date, but that it was actually filed by Gardner Green Hubbard without his knowledge or consent, Bell says. And the reason this is so important, of course, is that if you read any of the standard history texts, the way the story is usually told is that it was just coincidentally uh, that Bell and Gray made patent filings on the same day 
And because Gray was several hours later, he is relegated to being a footnote of history. Well, actually, it happened a different way than that familiar story. And even more interesting is this testimony of Bell's that the timing wasn't accidental at all. It looks like that may well have been a string that Gardner Green Hubbard was pulling. So there's a lot of stuff in there. It's, it's really quite an intrigue, and I try my best to pull all the strands together and, as I said, kind of surprised myself with being able to really give enough documentary evidence in the book that I think people will, will be persuaded I did my, my homework pretty well. One of, the, one of the fascinating things is that in the United States, it's not really a first-to-file system. It's sort of first-to-discover. That's right, and it certainly was at that time. And so in that sense, I think one of the amazing things, this is a, a little intrigue that happened an awfully long time ago, 1876, and yet the stakes were so high and the implications were so enormous. After all, this is still considered to be the most lucrative patent ever issued in the United States, and it led directly to uh, one of the largest monopolies the world has ever known, the, the Bell Telephone Company, which became AT&T. So in that sense, it's a little story, but one that kind of holds a special amount of interest because of the extent to which it really changed the way things unfolded. Mm. What happened after uh, the trial and uh, the patent was decided to both Bell and Gray? Well, you know, I think this is one of the really interesting things. It's certainly interesting to me and something that more people could pursue even further than I did. A lot of my book focuses on the intrigue surrounding the invention of the telephone, but it's quite clear to me that um, after a lot of this took place and was said and done, you had a situation where Bell met unbelievable fame and fortune throughout the whole rest of his life, and so many doors were opened up, it's hard to even go over them all, everything from demonstrating the telephone to the Queen of England to uh, winning honorary degrees and prizes for much of the rest of his life. And the interesting thing is to look at that and see that there were so many kind of unusual things that happened to Bell in his life and so many things that he did that were never fully explained, and I think this sheds a lot of new light on what ends up transpiring in his life. I think you see a lot of guilt and remorse on the part of Bell that helps to explain a lot of the things that he did. I mean, one one really basic example is that he never had much of anything to do with the company that bore his name. And, and people often explain that away as the fact that he didn't have a, a head for business. But I think there is a lot more to it that uh, I see a, a guy who really tried to wash his hands of a lot of what had transpired, but meanwhile, benefited from it for the rest of his life. Now, as for Elisha Gray, he unfortunately died uh, a very bitter man about this episode. Um, and toward the end of his life, discovered a lot of the uh, evidence that I present in the book for himself. And actually, there was a letter that was published just two days after his death in the leading electrical journal of his day that formally charged Bell with having ripped off his ideas. Um, and so while he didn't die in poverty or anything else, he uh, increasingly came to feel bitter about what had transpired. Well, I think rightly so. <laughs> yeah, it would seem to me. So both of those aftermaths, I think, are very, very interesting also because you have one guy who really felt cheated by history, even as an older man, and the other guy who lived an amazing life, had a million doors open to him, but always must have lived with a kind of guilt and remorse of having it all be due to a lie and a theft, really. Um, so quite an amazing, an amazing aftermath, I think. Mm -hmm. 
As you were investigating this uh, whole story, what was the most interesting part of either the investigation or great aha moments that you uh, came across? Well, there were just so many parts. I mean, it turned out to just be a fabulous odyssey, and I hope that comes through. I mean, this is not any kind of dense history. This <laughs> is a romp in a way, but it's also a, a very solid historical one. Um, and for me, you know, the, uh, the amazing thing is the extent to which the story that I was uncovering was so at odds with the history that we've all learned in school. And, uh, and that's really the theme of the book. It's about how history is made and how history is remembered. And uh, I just can't tell you the number of times where I was dumbfounded, literally, by seeing evidence in front of my eyes that just didn't comport with what I was expecting or what I'd known and thought I'd known, uh, what we all have heard. There's so many parts of the story that one way or another you, you take at face value because they're so familiar, and yet many of them, when you went back and looked at the letters of the time or the documentary evidence that you could find, they just didn't comport with what had happened at all. And that, that was just a fascinating experience to see that in such close detail on a particular set of events like this. And uh, I learned a lot and gained a lot of respect for the work that historians do, the kind of detective work that they often are, are engaged in. It's uh, painstaking work, but really rewarding in its own way, especially when you come on something like this. Mm, indeed. So did the historians at MIT that you work with come to that sort of appreciation of uh, the malleability of history? <laughs> I think so. I mean, I think if you do this work, you often have to confront that. And I had a lot of neat talks with them. I had to, as part of this fellowship year, present at least a good portion of, of the research that I had done that's now in the book. And so it, it was that was a very helpful experience also for me because it, it was sort of born in a place where people are they're pretty hard and tough and good arbiters of this kind of thing. And so I felt that I was on a pretty sort of solid historical foundation on a lot of what I was doing. And then made the choice to tell it as my own tale of discovery, partly as a way to try and make it more fun and accessible for people to read. And that's the part that I feel really best about right now, because it seems like people are, are really finding it to be, you know, a lot of the reviews are calling it a nonfiction thriller or whatever that it's exciting to read. And I, I think it is an exciting story. And so I hope people will, will take a look and give it a, a shot, even if they don't think that uh, the, the history of, of the telephone or technology is something that they'd necessarily gravitate to, because it uh, turns out to just have a lot of stuff in there. The time was also just fabulously interesting. It's real golden age of invention, and I really enjoyed learning more about it and sort of immersing myself in it. Well, the new book is uh, The Telephone Gambit, and author is Mr. Uh, Seth Shulman. Mr. Shulman, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thanks for having me. It was fun. And you're just listening to Mr. Seth Shulman discussing the telephone gambit. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000. It is, of course, our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. 
Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Take the Call or Hang Up. Mm. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you would take the call or just hang up. Mr. Shulman, ready to play the game? Well, I get, I'll, I'll, I'm playing against Deep Blue. I don't know. <laughs> okay, I'll give it a try. I should warn you, I tend to like to talk to people no matter what, but, but we'll see. Okay. Yeah, I don't know who you've got in store. All right, take the call or hang up. Person number one, O.J. Simpson. Hmm. I don't know if I'd take that call. I don't. I just don't know if I'd have much of anything to really talk about with O.J., unfortunately. So, yeah, well, here I just said I'd probably take the call, but probably on that one, I, I don't know what, I'd, what we'd have to talk about. Uh, all right, number two is Microsoft uh, CEO Bill Gates. Well, sure, I'd, I'd be happy to talk to Bill Gates. The thing that interests me most about him now is some of the work that the foundation's doing, and actually it's uh, they're, they're doing a lot of really fascinating stuff trying to vaccinate people in the third world and a whole host of other things. So we could certainly find things to talk about because I think that's, aside from how his fortune was made, there's just a lot of stuff he's involved in now that's really quite fascinating. Indeed, indeed. I think uh, his uh, humanitarian work's really come to the fore now. Yeah. Uh, number three is Steve Jobs. Oh, sure, yeah. I'd be happy to talk to him also. You know, I'm very interested in just the latest thing that's a Steve Jobs-related thing is the ultralight laptop that uh, Apple's going to be putting out that's uh, based on sort of flash drive technology. And I've always wanted a really, really super light, sturdy laptop because I travel a lot for my work. So talk to him for sure. Okay. <laughs> try, and, try and get an advance, you know, get an early one and see if I could wrangle something. Right. Maybe if you write a book for him, he'll give you one for free there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Number four is pop star Britney Spears. Well, gee, I don't know. Hmm. That would be a stretch for me to even figure out what to talk about with Brittany, but I don't know if I'd, I'd probably take the call. What the heck, you know? I, I know she's been having a tough time lately, so. Right. Could use some consoling, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. Okay, and finally, number five is the President of the United States, George Bush. Oh, sure. I'd talk to him. I'd have a lot to say to him. You know, the the book uh, the book I wrote prior to this, The Telephone Gambit, is called Undermining Science, uh, Suppression and Distortion in the Bush Administration. And it's a very different kind of book and a much more political one that talks about how um, scientists in the federal government have often been censored and uh, had their work distorted. And I'd certainly want to get him on record and talk to him about that. And we've actually had formal response from the administration about that book and the work that, that I was involved in on that. But, uh, but it be nice to actually do the interview directly with him. So yeah, I guess I'd take that call. I think a lot of people like to hear what you have to say about that too. <laughs> yeah, not that it would necessarily be too revealing, but uh, I told you in general, I tend to like to, to talk to people even if I don't see completely eye to eye with them. <laughs> well, we certainly like to thank you for talking to us today about the new book, which is of course uh, The Telephone Gambit, and of course sticking around to play our game, The Grokatron 5000. Uh, Mr. Shulman, thank you very much for joining us today. Sure, my pleasure. Okay. And now it's time for the world-famous question of the week. And here to give us the answer in the studio is, of course, our very own Simon the Smoky Monkey. Simon, how are you doing? You know something that's just been a huge mistake. In fact, I can talk. Simon, just answer the question. Otherwise, back to the electroshock chamber with you. <laughs> My favorite type of cake is Betty Crocker's yellow cake. That is very good cake. But what is yellow cake in actuality? Monkeys eat a lot of strange things, but some of the yellow stuff is nasty. It <laughs> gives you heartburn. And you know why? Because it's radioactive. What have you been eating, Simon? Mmm, <laughs> just yellow cake. That will stuff to produce weapons because these yellow cakes are just uranium minerals, uranium oxide, uranium sulfate, uranium carbonate, uranium goodness. You know, oddly, I think that's the same thing that's in the Betty Crocker recipes. Well, Betty Crocker's is more minty, you know. That's what yellow cake is. And once again, we are humans. 
And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grok. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grok, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grok's, I'm Frank Bling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.